Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. A number of breakaway regions in eastern Ukraine are pushing to hold votes on joining the Russian Federation. Also, President Erdogan of Turkey argues that Russia is amenable to a negotiated settlement and Liz Truss ignores working class suffering and vows more money for Ukraine. But first, the speech that was it. Mark Sloboda is a Moscow-based international relations security analyst, and he's going to tell us about the speech that didn't happen from President Putin in uh, Moscow today. Mark! I guess you're going to be silent since the speech didn't happen. I'm all confused. Mark Sloboda, what's happening? Garland, Dr. Leon, <laughs> thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. Actually, the uh, word out of Moscow now is that the speech did happen. It was recorded, uh, but because of the late hour here, it will not air until morning uh, in the Far East. So uh, it will be some hours away. Uh, so um, uh, it will it will start airing in the morning in the different time zones of Russia, which of which there is quite a few. Uh, so um, the uh, but it was deemed to be too late uh, for well the entirety of the country, considering that Russia is the uh, Moscow is the westmost region uh, time zone of the country. Uh, so uh, the speech um, in which it is presumed, uh, we have heard that both uh, the Russian president and the Russian defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, will speak, although we don't have confirmation of that last part, um, will be about both the possibility of the referendums uh, in the areas of Ukraine that have been liberated uh, from the West-backed Putsch regime forces, uh, specifically uh, uh, the Donbass republics, Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, Russia has previously recognized their independence, uh, but now because of the ongoing conflict and the fact that NATO has de facto declared war on Russia as well as them, that um, they would feel much safer being part of Russia. And uh, supposedly the two regions of southern Ukraine, Zaporozhye and Kherson, want to have referendums as well. And these are supposed to take place um, over a four-day period from the, the 23rd uh, through the 27th, uh, so starting this weekend. Uh, but we already have word that the Kiev regime is desperately mobilizing every force available that they can to throw at the front lines and try to disrupt this. There's a headline in the Washington Post, separatist regions push to join Russia as war effort falters. Pro-Russian officials in the two self-declared separatist quote-unquote republics in eastern Ukraine pled Monday for urgent votes calling for Moscow to immediately annex the territories, a sign of apparent panic that the Kremlin's war is failing. <laughs> Help me understand that analysis, Mark. I don't get that. I would call that success. Okay, so um, first of all, there is a, a definite fear factor 
out of after what happened to Horakov. Um, and I've already discussed on the show mm-hmm. at length how in uh, my analysis, what I see is the major problem is uh, Kiev uh, planned out by Washington, began a strategy of a counteroffensive basically everywhere at once. And because of the uh, self-imposed limitations, the legality of the special military operation, the Russian government has allocated only 150,000 troops, with uh, another uh, 50,000 East Ukrainians uh, who are there fighting um, to uh, out of 1 million active duty Russian troops and some 2 million reserves. Um, And that is because of their own limitation. So the problem was manpower. Russia, when everything was under assault, they couldn't hold everything at once. uh, And Kharkov uh, was what they decided to write off, and they started the withdrawal. Uh, even Western sources have now admitted, um, you know, basically almost a week before Kiev launched the offensive there. So they were basically uh, punching air. There were a few holding actions with some uh, stay-behind forces that were facilitating civilian ac- uh, uh, civilian evacuation uh, of the large numbers of people that were afraid uh, that they would be um, greeted by the Kiev regime forces, the neo-Nazi battalions, Kraken, Azov, and the others as collaborators, uh, because under Ukrainian law, even accepting food or medicines from from Russians now is a crime of collaboration. So they, they wanted to get into uh, Russia or at least into the Donbass, and there were long convoys of cars. But um, it, the reality is, is that the, the Kiev regime's uh, offensive was almost battleless except at the edges where Russian forces drew their new defensive lines like the Oskol River um, uh, to the, the far end of Kharkov. Um, and they suffered extremely high casualties because while making these um, infantry and mechanized um, uh, thunder runs, uh, very similar actually to what Russia did in the beginning of the, of, of the conflict. They exposed themselves to Russian artillery and aviation and suffered very high casualties among both men and Western provided gear. Uh, so that, that fear effect of what happened to Kharkov uh, has, I think, galvanized the opinion of the republics, both their leadership and the general population, and they have decided to uh, apply for um, joining Russia because then Russia w- would not have the option of pulling out. This would also solve the manpower issue because it would, by definition, redefine the special military operation because then it would be about the defense of Russia's borders. So it would automatically become a total war. And then Russia would be free to allocate their entire active duty military, um, uh, their reserves, and through the Duma today were pushed a number of laws firming up um, uh, the uh, legal details of mobilization, martial law, and the like that might be utilized in such a situation as well. So what we really see is that the response to Kharkov, the uh, response to this new strategy of throwing mass numbers of mobilized, conscripted Ukrainians everywhere at once is, okay then, well, we'll have our own mobilization and just finish this. And this, it's not 
not only about bringing these territories firmly under Russia's protection. It is about redefining the military operation in Ukraine as well. And it seems to me that if you if you consider this part of the Russian Federation, you don't have to declare war. You don't have to really say anything. If you say this is part of our right now, any country, this is part of our country. If anybody attacks it, you're going to defend your country. So you don't have to make any declarations. All you have to do is if somebody attacks you, you defend your country. Yes. And I mean, it has to be said that attacks have already occurred in Crimea and Belgorod. But this that it was always treated as something that should not be. And that was a red line. And the Kremlin just hesitated on responding forcibly to that. This, I think, finally indicates a sea change in the opinion uh, in the Kremlin that uh, they have recognized that they are uh, de facto in a war with all of NATO at this point. And the special military operation, while it destroyed, uh, largely destroyed the Kiev regime's first army, um, that NATO is busy building up, training, arming whole new armies for Ukraine, armed with their, completely with their own weapons at this point. And that requires a more serious military effort. So what now does the United States do through NATO in response to this? Okay, there are a number of options. First of all, they've already announced uh, new sanctions. You know, sanctions haven't had, uh, have only had a stronger effect on the West than Russia right now. So um, really to have an effect on Russia, those sanctions will actually have to target countries like China and India. Uh, that continue to do trade with Russia in large amounts, energy, and other things in defiance of Western sanctions. So in order to have a real effect, they would have to target other countries. I'm not sure that is on the table yet, but certainly it is something possible as things move forward. Um, uh, Another possibility is more advanced wonder weapons, you know, the so-called game changers. We've had so many of them so far that will be provided in small numbers uh, to the Kiev regime and won't, uh, you know, might, uh, you know, uh, contribute to the Kiev regime's defensive effort. But in in the end, they aren't going to provide any type of ultimate change to the inevitable result uh, to the war. They are not a game changer. The uh, the man pads weren't. uh, The uh, anti-tank weapon, handheld anti-tank weapons weren't. uh, The M777 howitzers weren't. The HIMARS weren't. And nothing else. Uh, The the nearest possibility is uh, probably the uh, ATACIMS, a long-range ballistic missile, which will uh, um, allow... uh, nearly uh, um, a a 200 mile distance Um, that is uh, you know something that would allow them to strike even further behind Russian lines of course it is a capability that Russia has far more of in in many different varieties Uh, but you know it it, like the high Mars it could inflict some damage Um, the other possibility is sending main Western main battle tanks but the problem here as with so much is that Kiev doesn't have the ability to repair them or maintain them and doesn't have anyone trained to use them so that is something 
that would be more of a long range goal, but simply announcing it, maybe uh, also fighter aircraft as well, F-16s. But again, they would not be an immediate effect on the war. It would be something that could only have an effect six months to a year down the road. Uh, we only got a minute. Do you, what do you think about uh, the possibility of if this, you know, if, if uh, um, cutting Europe off of gas, of cutting them off, of just saying we we had it with you people, we're going to do this, and we're not doing any more business with you. Goodbye, as far as gas and oil. Do you think that's a possibility? A, a one minute. That is a very real possibility. There are still some gas uh, through Turkstream and uh, one or two other pipelines getting there. Uh, and Gazprom has since announced that even with reduced flows, they're still making more money than ever because of the high price on the global markets as a result of the disruption by EU trying to do without Russian gas and buying from elsewhere in the mar global market. Uh, so it will not have the results they're looking for, that the West is looking for, and, and Russia may very well go to a, whole, a total cutoff this winter. We've been talking with Mark Saboda, Moscow-based international relation and security analyst, and I'm sure we'll be talking to him again tomorrow. <laughs> You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. stance on Taiwan is getting more confrontational, as a new anti-China bill seems destined to arm Taiwan and provoke war. Also, the Chinese foreign minister is meeting with his Nicaraguan counterpart, and the SCO meeting showed that pipeline politics are at the center of future geopolitical agreements. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we've got K.J. No. He's a peace activist, a writer, and a teacher. K.J., welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Asia, Asia Times says pipeline politics prominent at SCO summit. China can't open. Now, this is according to them. China can't openly support Russia and Ukraine, but lends a hand by vowing to build a and they call this game changing power of Siberia to gas pipeline. I suspect that that gas that has been going to Europe will be rerouted in an easterly direction. Your thoughts on all of this pipeline stuff and the importance of it. KJ, no. Yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. The uh, gas which was going through the Nord Stream uh, pipelines and, and through Ukraine will be rerouted uh, to China through uh, this new uh, power of Siberia pipeline. And so for Russia, there's no uh, net loss. Um, you know, it loses one market in a, uh, you know, with a belligerent set of states and it will transition and transfer those um, you know, the, that gas to, to China, you know, which is functioning very closely uh, as an ally. And I think it speaks to further trends, which is that uh, all of Eurasia will be integrated through what is sometimes called pipelinistan, that is a <laughs> series of pipelines that look, that are starting to look like metro lines all over uh, Eurasia. And that will fundamentally change the calculus. As we know, Industrial capital uh, is driven by fuels, especially fossil fuels. It tries, uh, it tries, it, it's, 
its original source of energy was human labor, but that human labor is amplified through the use of fossil energy. And when it no longer has that, then we are going to start to see the beginning of deindustrialization. What about this subheader, China can't openly support Russia in Ukraine, but lends a hand by building this pipeline. That, to me, is one of those subtle or maybe not so subtle uh, inaccurate narratives. Because, to, to me, if you listen to what not only uh, President Xi, but the foreign minister and others It's very clear what this is all about. And a lot of times it's not so much what they do say, it's what they don't say. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's pretty open. I mean, a a pipeline is a pretty obvious uh, thing to notice. I don't think there's anything underhanded or hidden about this. And I think you're absolutely right. What is not said is, as I said before, the center of gravity is shifting to Asia, Central Asia, Uh, and China and Russia. And uh, as we see economic and trade integration, we're also going to see energy integration. And that is what's going to fuel the development of the heartland, uh, as opposed to the uh, to the rest of the periphery, which is now going to see, you know, massive, uh, massive amounts uh, of pain and suffering. I've just read uh, recently, uh, that it's expected that something close to 40% of the UK's industries are expected to close. And it's similar for Germany and other parts of Western Europe. So, I mean, this is nothing to to trifle about. It's extraordinarily serious and extraordinarily extraordinarily miscalculated by the United States. China State Councilor and Foreign Minister Wang Yi met with uh, the Nicaraguan Foreign Minister Dennis Mokada on Monday, um, and at which time he said that uh, China is firmly committed to developing ties with Nicaragua. And this is important because um, President Xi recently talked about no more color revolutions. He says they're firmly committed to developing ties with Nicaragua and supporting Nicaragua's effort to defend its sovereignty, wonder from whom, independence and national dignity, noting that Nicaragua's independent choice of development path has the full backing of China. Your thoughts? Well, I think it's a very, very strong statement. Remember, Nicaragua, since the earliest, early 20th century, has been subject to constant U.S. coups, dictatorships, destabilization, and uh, insurgency. And it has always suffered and had a precarious uh, existence because of this constant U.S. Uh, uh, undermining. And with China firmly in its corner, along with the rest of the BRICS countries and along with the SCO, uh, once again, we see the strength and the consolidation of uh, anti-imperial bloc forming, which will really change the calculus. The U.S. will have to rethink how it approaches the rest of Latin America. And I think it's also very important because there's been a lot of this discussion about a new canal being built. And uh, with, you know, China building a canal, if it is able to uh, strengthen its relationship uh, with with Nicaragua and we've got, I think, China bolstering its relationship with Bolivia. Uh, So once again, these are all 
very powerful indicators that the United States is on the wrong side of the relationship. Absolutely, and things are shifting rapidly. If the Nicaragua Canal is completed, it will essentially bypass and undermine the Panama Canal, which again is one of the U.S. Uh, choke points and one of the ways in which U.S. controls the global economy. So these are game changers. Same thing with Bolivia, same thing with the uh, mineral resources all around Latin America, same thing with the uh, energy resources in Central Asia. Well, the other thing that I think it is important is that if they build this canal, it is it, 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 what it does is it creates a giant um, job opportunity zone for Nicaragua. I, I mean, there will be so many jobs. The amount that it will cost to build that, the number of laborers and people that will be used will create an environment where, you know, from the looks of things, we'll have to build a wall at the, at the U.S. border to keep Americans from crossing the border going south to get a job in Nicaragua. That's very possible. <laughs> you know, the Nicaragua Canal is 53.5 miles. It's uh, about two and a half times the length of the Panama Canal. It has 82 curves, which is about a three and a half times the number of curves. It's a, it's a huge uh, undertaking, but the, the Chinese are very accustomed to doing this. They're accustomed to doing centuries-long projects on waterways, you know, six centuries uh, building canals all across central China. And so they're pretty familiar with this type of civil engineering. And yes, it will be an incredible amount of, uh, you know, economic development through jobs. And also, when you look at the map of the Caribbean Sea, if there is a canal through Nicaragua, now you're looking at Jamaica, you're looking at Haiti, you're looking at the Dominican Republic, and you're looking at Puerto Rico. And... The United States is doing everything it can do to keep China out of those out of those islands. Absolutely. So it will change the entire tenor of the Caribbean and uh, the environs. And once again, you know, more uh, fundamental shift in the alliances of those countries. This is very, very possible. And, and let me, if, Garland, if I could quickly, certainly, this certainly. just, it, this is, this is very far-fetched, but so the United States is, is threatening Taiwan or thinks it's threatening Taiwan. We know that Puerto Rico is now, has been deluged with over two and a half feet of rain. So they get this canal built and now China says to Puerto Rico, hey, we can help you with your electrical grid. Hey, we can help you with your infrastructure. I would pretty much assume the United States would be all up in arms if China started knocking on Puerto Rico's door. Absolutely. But I mean, if I were a Puerto Rico, I would actually reach out to China because China has an incredible record of building precisely that kind of basic infrastructure, which has been lacking for decades uh, in, in Puerto Rico. I mean, just as on the mainland, we see crumbling bridges and uh, decrepit infrastructure. It's even worse in Puerto Rico. And this is a lack that needs to be remedied, even if the Chinese need to be involved if we were rational and uh, humane thinking uh, people. Uh, a couple of articles we put together, Asia Times, U.S. stance on Taiwan hardening amid China's threats. 
threat. President Biden again says U.S. will defend Taiwan militarily, an increasingly clear shift away from strategic ambiguity. But what's interesting is President Biden says it, and then the White House says, no, 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 he didn't mean it. Then a couple months later, he says it. So now we've got this thing. And we know what happens. Every so often they ask uh, President Biden, will you defend Taiwan? He immediately says yes. The White House immediately says he didn't mean yes when he said yes. And um, your thoughts on all of that? Well, I think, um, you know, there's, you know, the fourth time, the third time, uh, you know, I think all doubts are gone. The fourth time we're beyond doubt. The uh, U.S. will be involved militarily in Taiwan. This is the fourth time the president has said it. Now, the White House says that the remarks do not represent a change in Taiwan policy, but uh, it seems very clear that the Taiwan policy right now of this White House is to get militarily involved in Taiwan. So I don't think that is really, uh, you know, a viable uh, denial of any sort. Um, I think that, once again, this is very, very dangerous. This is um, very, very foolhardy. Uh, China, uh, as as they said of Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee once said that, you know, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks. I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. And, um, you know, Taiwan is, uh, from China's standpoint, it's that one kick that it has been rehearsing. It takes uh, the reunification of China and the prevention of separatism very, very seriously. It would not brook interference anymore then the U.S. would brook interference if China were weaponizing uh, a Confederate state to become independent or uh, granting it de facto or uh, de jure uh, independence. It would not be tolerated, and, uh, and China will not tolerate that. So during the 60 Minutes interview, Scott Pelley asked the question if U.S. would defend Taiwan, and the president says yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. And then Scott Pelley says, so unlike Ukraine, to be clear, U.S. forces, U.S. men and women would defend Taiwan. And Biden says, yes. You know, folks think that, that, that Biden is showing signs of age. It's not that. It's that what he's trying to articulate makes absolutely no sense. Even the sanest, stablest mind is going to have trouble gripping this because it's foolish. It's absolutely foolish. And the notion of defending Taiwan from China, remember, Taiwan province is part of China. The Taiwanese agree with that. The Chinese agree with that. The UN agrees with that. The US agrees with that. This is like uh, Biden saying that he is going to defend. Um, this is like a China, Xi Jinping, saying that he's going to defend Texas from the United States. It's not possible. It just doesn't happen. And for the president to continue to make these absurd, provocative, and international law violating statements is really, you know, it's it's just a really uh, a bad sign of uh, how far uh, we've we've gone. You know, we've we've um, fallen apart in terms of diplomacy and politics. We've been talking with K.J. No. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Trade unions and other social and working-class groups flowed into the streets across Austria as the EU's self-imposed sanctioned regime continues to crush living standards and stoke anger. Also, the French have been warned of blackouts this winter because the nuclear, nuclear energy production will not meet the nation's energy needs. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we got Ted Rawl. Ted Rawl's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Ted Rawl, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. RT reports, private households in France may face power outages this winter in the event of severe frost. The head of the emergency, excuse me, energy regulator, CRE, Emmanuel Wargon, told France Info Radio on Monday. Doesn't sound good. Uh, And uh, based on what I know about France, they'll be in the streets. Your thoughts, Ted Rawl? Yeah, it never takes much for the French to get to hit the streets, which is one of the things I, I like about them. Uh, and it's, um, you know, I, I mean, the other thing is that uh, the French have a very low tolerance for dysfunction. You know, it's not Italy or Greece. Uh, the, 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 you know, France is a very well-run, tightly-run society, and people have expectations about basic services being provided. Uh, this is the kind of uh, stuff that really no one who is, say, younger than 70 is going to have any experience of in France. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to have um, some, some pretty serious political uh, blowback. One of the things, Ted, that I find interesting is, is this um, executive from the energy company says, under no circumstances will there be gas shutdowns, but on the electrical side, we may be faced with having to make difficult decisions because up to this point, the general conversation has been natural gas, that there's going to be a gas problem here. They're saying, no, gas will be okay. Electricity will be our problem. Well, people always forget where electricity comes from, right? I mean, electricity, you know, electricity comes from nuclear power. It comes from, uh, you know, photovoltaic and, and, you know, wind and obviously coal here in the United States. So it's a complicated picture and, uh, you know, the, the French in the past have sometimes even been an energy exporting country. But everything's, you know, everything's uh, up in the air now. Uh, you know, it's, it's not you don't really want to be President Macron right now. Um, you know, the French are an easily angered people uh, and uh, they're, they're already very, very riled up. This is, uh, you know, this is, if and it can get very cold by the way, mm-hmm. in France. A lot of people uh, might be familiar with, uh, you know, the, you know, even it doesn't get that cold in, in Paris, but like in their, their areas, like not just in the Alps and the Massif Central, but in eastern and northern, uh, you know, France, where it can definitely be in the 20s. It can snow a lot. Uh, I've been there when that happened. So uh, it could be really serious. Well, I, something tells me that come January, uh, Emmanuel Macron, Macron will look back to se- September with great fondness and say, man, it was great back then. Now, it's, you know, people are actually trying to eat you and that's not good. Here's the other thing, though, when I look at it, they're saying nuclear energy is problem. Nuclear energy is the problem. To me, it's like this. It's like somebody that stabbed somebody in the heart and say that the person died of blood le- loss. Nuclear energy is not the problem. The problem is that you ain't getting gas and you're supposedly saying you're going to cut all oil from Russia in um, in December 15th or whatever. So you're cutting out your gas. You're cutting out your oil. You don't have any electricity. And people say, what's the problem? Oh, nuclear energy. Uh, I don't think that's it. I think this is a, a head fake, shall we say, um, Ted. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, I mean, look, I'm not an, I'm not an energy expert, but I think it really just defies common sense to think that uh, an economy the size of France's, uh, which is one of the biggest in the world, could pivot uh, away from Russian energy uh, away in, you know, in a matter literally of months and adjust without there being just grave shocks to the French economy. Uh, and I just, you know, it, it's even if they, the French had said, oh, we're going to do this over the course of three years and gradually phase it out, it still would have had massive ramifications. and It would have taken a long time uh, for nuclear and other sources to make up the difference. Uh, but, you know, you're trying to do it just sort of basically overnight. I mean, it really makes you question the competence of the government. Liz Truss vows military aid worth billions for Ukraine as UK suffers from cost of living crisis. The UK remains one of the leading donors to military aid to Kiev, committing $2.6 billion since the special operations was launched. Uh, when you when you take her statements and what we just talked about in France. These are examples of what I think are just really uh, the, the fuses being lit for an awful lot of unrest in Europe. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, you know, the, all, Europe is definitely staring down the barrel of, you know, some serious economic shocks. Uh, I think probably the best analogy that uh, those of us of a certain age can think of is, uh, you know, the mid the mid 1970s OPEC oil crisis that led to uh, rationing and other shortfalls, and it had ripple effects throughout the economy that led to even more inflation, and uh, it's just you know it, it 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 caused sort of a stagflation, sort of permanent state of recession when it was brought under control. I mean, you know. America didn't really get over the energy crisis for arguably 10 to 15 years. I mean, this is a serious thing. And, you know, I think this this in some ways feels bigger. Uh, and what's really crazy is it's a completely self-inflicted blow. Uh, this isn't, you know, Saudi Arabia and other oil producers sort of just it's not like Russia decided not to ship the energy just to be mean. Uh, they're, they're literally deciding to do without it at the expense of their people. You know, I don't know how Liz Truss leaves office, but I have a suspicion it's going to have something to do with climbing on a plane at a remote airstrip with like bags of cash. <laughs> That's how, you know, it's going to be like the guy who left Afghanistan with people like dangling off of the fuselage because I don't think this is going to end well. Liz, Liz Truss has come in and has taken like no account whatsoever for the devastating economic specter that's hanging over uh, the shadow that's hanging over Europe. And she's just, I mean, over her country. And she's just acting like, yes, we must move forward with Ukraine. And as for all of the stuff at home, eh, you know, we'll find some way to deal with it. Back to Ukraine. We must stop Putin. I'm like, man, uh, 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 Ted, this thing is going to end really badly. Yeah, it would be kind of re uh, remarkable if she uh, ended up having to step down within a matter of uh, six months or so. But I could easily see that happening. Uh, you know, she wasn't even as popular in the polls as Boris Johnson. Um, she's She comes in uh, basically as a sort of a watered-down replacement. I don't really understand, other than just not being Boris Johnson, how she was supposed to represent uh, an improvement for the Tories 
So, um, you know, this is, it, it, it is, I guess she could have a, a rabbit, uh, you know, uh, in her hat, but so far there's, there's no sign of that. You know, Ted, you mentioned just a second ago that this could be worse than the 70s oil crisis. I think you're absolutely right. A, because it's self-inflicted, but B, because I think this is forcing a total realignment and total readjustment of relationships in the world. And so when this dust settles, I believe the West is going to find a whole new uh, global dynamic that it wasn't planning on and will not be able to deal with. Yeah, well, we're already seeing that, right? I mean, correct. Now, that's my point. Sorts of re- that's right. Yeah, and I, I mean, I totally agree with you. Uh, there's, I think you know, it's it's the West, uh, particularly the United States, is uh, they still think that they're in a unipolar world, and uh, you, the Ukraine crisis uh, shows that uh, they're not. Um, you know, I mean, it's uh, China, Russia, uh, other countries, India. Iran uh, have all been chomping at the bit, um, and you know, and and chafing under American hegem- uh, ec- you know, economic and cultural and military hegemony for a long time. Uh, you know, this is it was only a matter of time that something uh, you know created a common interest, and uh, well, it appears like we're getting there. Yeah, you. Let, let me let me add just one more thing quickly, sure. if I could, Garland. Uh, and 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 Ted, when you throw the global South into that as well, and when something uh, as as fundamental to American policy as the Monroe Doctrine is being thrown into the dustbin, that, I mean that just to me adds insult to injury. Of course, uh, you know the Monroe Doctrine was a you know arguably 180 years overdue to be overthrown <laughs> thrown into the dustbin because it's such an insane idea. I mean, the, the, no other country on earth uh, would ever posit that it has an inherent sphere of influence uh, over an entire hemisphere of nations, and uh, you know basically like well, just because because we say so. I mean, no one else is saying that. Um, so. Or would ever say anything quite as absurd as that. I mean, I, I guess you'd probably have to say Imperial Japan during the run-up of uh, World War II, but even they didn't really put it the same way. It was more about territorial and, and economic ambition. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a pretty crazy st- state of affairs, and it's going to be real interesting to see uh, where we are in, in January or February. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see where we are in the next week at the, the, the pace things are going. Protests across Austria demand solution to cost of living crisis. Uh, you know, Ted, it, things, it hasn't gotten cold yet. And the people in Austria, they, the, these people that were running around with these uh, Ukrainian flags and all this kinds of stuff are going to wake up here shortly and they're going to be furious. And I, I, I feel like there's no way that Europe can remain a civilized society. If people, people aren't, aren't rational when they're hungry, they're not rational when they're cold and they can be quite violent. Ted, am I overstating things here? And, and Garland, they're real irrational when they're hungry and cold and cold and hungry. Well, and the thing is that unlike Americans, there's nothing in their political culture in Europe that tells them that when things go badly economically and that they're suffering, that it's on them, that it's their problem, it's their responsibility to fix. 
um, you know, the, Europe has, a, you know, Europeans are used to a much stronger social safety net than we are. They have, uh, you know, and, and the idea that their government uh, would let them be cold, go cold or hungry is completely anathema. I mean, these are countries with universal health care. These are countries with free, basically free college tuition. Uh, these are countries where unemployment benefits are not capped to expire at any point in time. It's a country where the where the elderly are, are cared for with home care attendants. I mean, it's a very different world. So their expectations are much higher. You know, Americans are more more uh, you know accepting of the idea. Like, well, too bad for them. The government won't do anything for them. They can just die. But Europeans aren't like that. They they expect a lot, and rightly so. And the, the final story, Europe's real-time experiment in energy contraction. And to your point, uh, Ted, European society is currently undergoing a real-time experiment in energy contraction. This is, this is a, a fundamental shift in the geopolitical landscape, and it's self-inflicted. Well, that's the part that's so baffling. I mean, so I think that what where we're going to be is we're not going to be at a point where uh, political opponents of European uh, leaders say, well, we should not, you guys wasted all of our money on Ukraine and you cut off Russian gas because of Ukraine. And, and, and that's the problem. I think it's going to be more straightforward than that. I think it's just going to be, this is really bad. Make it stop. We don't care how. Just fix it. And well, isn't isn't that many, isn't many, that why we're seeing the rise of the right in many in many of these countries? There's, that's right. There's going to be, uh, you know, obviously this is in you know, times of crisis is not a time for moderates or centrists. Uh, and so you're going to see those, you know, obviously the solutions and the power are going to derive from the left and from the right. And in some cases, some odd conveniences of, uh, you know, in parliamentary systems, some odd political alliances between left-wing and, and right-wing parties. But you're, you're definitely going to, it, this definitely feeds into the, uh, some right-wing narratives. We've been talking with Ted Rawl. He's a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist. Don't go to Rawl. That's R-A-L-L.com for more. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Today, we join uh, Margaret Kimberly. She's the Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist to discuss the passing of the Queen and how this event has reopened a conversation about the oppressive history of European and American colonialism. Margaret Kimberly, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Good to be here. Margaret starts her uh, article, and you can find it at blackagendareport.com. It's called Decolonizing the Mind. She starts off with, the word decolonization should not be treated as trendy slang. It describes an important political and psychological process. Media and state attempts at indoctrination show just how important it is. Margaret Kimberly, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, it's important for us to stop and think when an event, any event, is shoved down our throats by uh, media, 
24-7, such as the death of the queen, the 12 days of mourning, the endless stories, we have to ask ourselves, why are they making this so prominent? And uh, the answer is, um, and, and it's true in this case, is usually that they want us to stick with the narrative and are afraid of uh, anyone asking questions. In this case, why does this country have a monarch? Why are we supposed to pay so much attention? Aren't these people fabulously wealthy? Aren't the uh, working people in the UK suffering from inflation and uh, other things caused by that country's foreign policy and its allegiance to the United States? Why should Americans care? What's the history of the British Empire? What has uh, um, England done around the world throughout history? And these are all very important questions. But uh, if you go on and on about, you know, uh, um, who was at the funeral and who was in the funeral procession and which presidents did or didn't attend and what we should know about Prince Charles on and on and on, then you won't ask these questions. And the term decolonization has become uh, popular, but that can be a problem because that can mean that people don't take it seriously enough uh, and it can be uh, used by uh, bad actors. The first uh, sentence of your piece, it is vital to free ourselves from belief in systems of white supremacy and imperialism that are inculcated in the educational system and are affirmed and amplified by the media and established establishment opinion. You mentioned narrative. Uh, the symbolism of all of this is that the optics are incredibly powerful and they reinforce um, this belief in the system. And I think it was, I think it was Gil Scott Heron who, who talked about when it comes to revolution, the activity that you see in the street is not the revolution. The revolution comes when you change your mind the revolution comes when you change the way you look at things. And what you see in the street is the physical manifestation of that change in mindset. And so this 12 days of mourning, we couldn't, we couldn't get this woman off of our television screen. All of this goes into reinforcing that system, reinforcing that belief in the system, and perpetuating that narrative. Yes, and the you know when something is covered that way, it uh, nobody has to tell you that the rest of the world isn't important, or that uh, Europe is. Nobody has to say the words uh, uh, Europe and other white-led uh, countries such as the UK are more important. You say that um, just by going on and on and on about those countries. That um, subconsciously tells people, oh, that's the important part of the world. But if you have a decolonized mind and you see the crown on top of her coffin and you know that the diamond on top of that crown was stolen from India in the 1800s and is now worth at least $400 million and the Indians want it back, um, all of um, that, and it's propaganda, let's just call it that, uh, will have less of. Um, less of an impact. So I think it's always important to ask who gets attention, why are they getting it? And we have to educate ourselves. Our, you know, the educational system 
uh, does not help us here. I was not taught about uh, the British Empire stealing what are now uh, trillions of dollars from India and from uh, other countries they uh, colonized, that the Queen of England in the 1970s, let's go to more uh, current history, that the uh, British Crown, the British government, and the CIA kicked a an Australian prime minister out of office uh, because the queen is the head of state of these Commonwealth countries. So you can't say, well, you know, it's just a ceremonial thing. And then the crown actively participating, participated in getting rid of an elected leader of a country that we're told is a uh, democracy. So uh, I think in general, uh, even if you may not know all the details and the facts, when uh, you are inundated and indoctrinated like this, you know that something is up. And by the way, they still haven't stopped the funeral. I was hoping it would be over. Oh, no. Now <laughs> they're talking about when will the coronation take place? So they're milking this for all that it's worth. And um, that's something that has to be paid attention to. You know, Margaret, what's interesting about the, this, the time we're in now is we traditionally we talk about colonization and we talk about imperialism from the perspective of the global south, right? But now people in Europe are waking up to realize that they have no independence and sovereignty. They're waking up to see their leaders wipe out their economy with at the snap of a fingers of a Joe Biden or the neocons here just say, just wipe out your economies and destroy them. And they're like, sure, no problem. The people are irrelevant. So the people who have been benefiting from or at least ostensibly benefiting from imperialism, benefiting from stealing the bananas and the coffee and things of that nature from the global south are now finding that this monster has turned in, 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 inward and that the people of Europe are actually now victims of imperialism. Margaret. Sure. You know, let's not forget that European nations are still occupied. There are U.S. troops in Germany. In Italy, there's a U.S. Air Force base in the U.K. That's called being occupied. And so when the United States decides to uh, use Ukraine to fight against Russia and simultaneously weaken the EU and prevent, um, I know U.K. is not in the EU, but all the European countries, um, uh, to make sure that they don't get any big ideas about being independent of the U.S. and having independent foreign policy, they drop the hammer. They all go along. They have literally cut off their noses to spite their faces. They need Russian gas, but they're still sanctioning Russia and harming themselves uh, very clearly. And England is um, uh, the UK is one of those countries where people are suffering because their leadership are going along with the U.S. So I suppose there are pecking orders to uh, colonialism and imperialism, and you know they have higher standards of living and so forth. And as you point out, because of imperialist theft over um, uh, many decades, but now they are the ones suffering because the hegemon, and a hegemon doesn't have friends or allies, it has enemies and vassals, because their leadership are happy vassals of the U.S., now they're getting a taste of what life is like for people in the rest of the world who dare to even think to be independent of the U.S. You write, yet anyone who questions the monarchy's role as part of the Western axis of domination is rarely given access to media, making it difficult to be free of propaganda that is used to elicit 
uh, fealty to monarchs, presidents, and the people and institutions who empower them. And it it's you're absolutely right. And that statement fits into the broader context of what's happening in terms of deplatforming uh, in this country as the United States has turned to Facebook, has turned to Twitter, and is using those uh, platforms as uh, as tools of of promoting the American narrative, and they deplatform people, they remove people who are challenging that narrative, and those people are using fact-based arguments to uh, challenge the narrative, and they are they are they are they are banished. Uh, and 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 not given not given voice. Absolutely, um, you know uh, we we all know this has happened. Some of us, this has happened too, in some way or other, on Twitter or Facebook. You're deplatformed or shadow banned, or um, uh, they have uh, the uh, uh, hordes of. Uh, now the big issue is Ukraine. Uh, they have hordes of people, and I'm not exaggerating, who do nothing but attack anyone who questions uh, uh, U.S. policy in Ukraine to try to discredit people or just to shut people up to just because you don't want to deal with the, what can only be called the targeted harassment. But what is repeated over and over and over again, it's always something that uh, either does not matter or is harmful, or explains away things that the U.S. and the U.K. have done. For example, scuttle um, Ukraine and Russia were talking. And the uh, recent prime minister, former prime minister Boris Johnson, personally went to Ukraine to make sure that the Ukrainians didn't talk to Russia, which means thousands of lives have been lost since that happened. And um, uh, that is why. But if anybody says that, and we know this is true, if anyone says that, they're in danger of being silenced. You know, the other thing, Margaret, is even now we're starting to see, and I mean, they can't help discussing on mainstream a little bit some of the, um, you know, horrible actions of the, or at least mentioning, referring to, alluding to, they don't really get into detail, some of the horrible actions of the British Empire um, in the past. But they won't talk about the present. It's always, well, they've done things in the past and these were terrible and back in Africa, blah, 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 blah. But they won't go into today what's going on. Margaret. Oh, absolutely. And uh, so if you want to talk about the past, say, OK, give the Kohinoor diamond back to India. <laughs> There's another diamond on the Queen's scepter that was stolen from South Africa that is likewise worth many millions of dollars. So give it back. Um, uh, reparations to these nations, to in Africa, in the Caribbean, through India, through the sun never set on the British Empire. So there's a lot of uh, debt that is um, that is owed. So if we want to talk about the present, we can still talk about the present. We can talk about uh, how the UK is uh, America's number one partner in evil doing around the world, or the the role that some of their intelligence people. Uh, played in trying to discredit Donald Trump and uh, sparking the um, uh, Russiagate hoax. And yes, that's what it was. So we could talk about the present, too, uh, because there's plenty happening now that uh, people need to be aware of, aware of that is also being covered up. So, Margaret, how do we break through? 
how do we challenge, you know, Orinoco Tribune has a piece, uh, the Queen's death resurfaces seven decades of British crimes against Iran. That story isn't getting mainstream coverage. How do we break through? Well, we do as best we can, and and the uh, your show and the Orinoco Tribunes and the Black Agenda reports. People have to pay attention so they know Iran had a de- democratically elected government in the early fifties, and Britain took the lead, and the U.S. helped in getting rid of their president. So I think that we do as much as we can to try and break through, and we try to talk to other people, and and that can be delicate. You don't want to tell somebody you shouldn't watch the Queen's funeral. You just tell them, well, you know, did you know this and did you know that? And don't you think it's interesting that you can't turn on your computer without seeing something about the Queen's funeral, even if you're not interested? So I think we just have to keep doing uh, what we are doing and uh, point out the, uh, some cases, outright lies, in some cases, uh, uh, the sins of omission, in some cases, the hypocrisy. We just have to keep doing what we're doing to the best of our ability. We've been talking with Margaret Kimberly. She is uh, the Black Agenda Report editor and senior columnist. Go to blackagendareport.com for more. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Israeli troops raid the home of the director of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Also, the Israeli prime minister has vowed to extract gas from the Karish field with or without a deal from Lebanon. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. Leith, before we get on top of these stories, I understand there's a lot going on with you. There's some censorship. Uh, You know, fill us in, fill our audience in on what's happening in the latest. Uh, Well, basically, uh, the American Congress and the Canadian Parliament had a joint meeting and ordered uh, the executives of social media uh, to come and testify. Uh, And in this uh, special meeting, they discussed uh, the banning of two accounts that they feel were, uh, you know, the most egregious uh, purveyors of uh, hate against Jewish people. And those two accounts was Laith Maruf and the account of the uh, Supreme Leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei. I was, you know, floored. <laughs> and uh, this is what had happened, uh, you know, within... Uh, a few hours, uh, Twitter had uh, basically been, um, you know, succumbed to the directives of the governments of Canada and the United States and uh, erased my existence uh, virtually. Um, and under the erroneous, non-binding and purposefully, um, you know, confusing interpretation of what is anti-Semitism, uh, under the uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, which uh, makes it uh, uh, anti-Jewish to criticize the political ideology of Zionism, 
and or the uh, Jewish supremacist colony um, in Palestine. And, you know, if, if your listeners remember Beit Salem, the largest human rights organization in um, Israel, finally uh, acknowledged what Palestinians have been saying for 100 years, that, uh, you know, the colony is based on Jewish supremacy and maintained through it, and it's an apartheid state. That's what led the international, uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and other organizations to follow on that. So we're in a reality where the governments of Canada and the United States who do not want to enforce by law a, a um, erroneous interpretation of what it is uh, hate speech against Jewish people, um, because they know it will lose in court, as it has happened many times in the United States with the uh, IHRA definitions being imposed in different states. They are uh, ordering the social media platforms to uh, prove, you know, perform free, uh, the rulings on what is free speech and what is not. Even though you have been virtually removed, we're glad that we are able to physically engage with you. But on the on the serious side, it's one thing for you to, to be attacked in terms of being deplatformed. But it's another thing when they start engaging in the tactics of, I think it's called doxing, where your personal information is being made public and photographs of your family are being made public. And this has become a very dangerous and very, very, very serious situation for your family. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, um, in this new world that we live in, they will uh, do such things. And, of course, we've seen um, many people that got doxxed in such ways online, um, you know, having to go into hiding or uh, commit suicide in many in many cases, uh, but if, you know they, their problem here, the Zionists, is that they have picked a fight with a Palestinian, and Palestinians are used to uh, being treated even worse. And this is what what uh, also angers the Zionists is that if I was in Palestine, as they say uh, in their tweets online when they're attacking me and. Uh, calling for my death is that that uh, if I was in Palestine, I would be killed. Of course, I would be killed. The Palestinians get killed for less than this, for cartoons, uh, drawings, uh, for poetry, for uh, just uh, imagining that they can fight back uh, against Jewish white supremacy. And, uh, you know, my children and wife would have been rounded up, my extended family so also. And our homes would have been demolished, blown up by the Zionists. That's the reality. And what they did here to me in uh, Canada and the United States is the maximum they can do without actual liquidating me. Uh, they have uh, basically ran amok in, their, uh, in the media that they have influence over and decided to uh, assassinate my reputation um, threaten my children and my family online and get away with it to show that they are in control. Yes, um, you know, 
they they were angry that there's an uppity Sam basically that was able to speak back at them and call them Jewish white supremacists and uh, not get punished for it. That's what angers them, that they can't actually kill me. That brings us to uh, our first story. And our first story is Israeli troops raid the home of the Al-Aqsa Mosque director, temporarily arresting him. Um, Do you know anything about that story? What's your thought on that? I mean, this is a continuation of the story now that's been going on for two years of uh, Jewish white supremacists trying to enforce their uh, authority over Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Holy Sanctuary. Um, And so, you know, that started, of course, with all these uh, Zionists running amok in the streets of Jerusalem, chanting death to Arabs and uh, other profanities against the prophet of Islam and so forth, trying to crash into the mosque that started the war in 2001, uh, 2021 and 2022 again last in the, uh, earlier in the summer for the same reason. So, uh, and this clearly connects to our story of what, uh, you know, what we were talking about, the ban on, on Twitter of, of such discussions. Uh, you know, um, uh, Garland, uh, that, that Wilmer joined me in, on, a, on a panel uh, last Friday we recorded in specifically about being able to talk about these issues, the right to offend um, our oppressors and talk about them in such ways. This is the imam of the Aqsa Mosque being rounded up exactly for speaking for the liberation of Palestine, speaking for the rights of Palestinians to pray in the their holy one of their holiest uh, places on earth. Um, uh, and you can watch that uh, panel of discussion on uh, Real People's Media uh, website, uh, and uh, it, it, it's it's a really important discussion. Real People's dot media, Real People's dot media. You'll find that discussion, and uh, we can see how all of this connects all together. One of the ironies with this story is Al Kiswani the director of Alaska Mosque was arrested for speaking out against raids of Alaska Mosque. So the Israeli army is raiding the mosque. He speaks out against the raids. They then raid the mosque and arrest him for speaking out against the raid. I mean, the, it, 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 would, it, it would be foolish and silly if it weren't so serious. Yeah, I mean, it seems like clearly the uh, imam didn't get the memo from the American Congress that uh, to oppose Jewish white supremacy uh, and their right to desecrate Muslim holy sites is uh, anti-Semitic, according to the Congress. And this is where we're at. Um, You know, the Zionists want to declare anything and everything that, uh, you know, either uh, exposes their Jewish white supremacy or opposes that uh, supremacy to be anti-Semitic. You know, math, when it tells you that there is more Palestinian children dead than uh, the zero number of, uh, you know, Israeli children dead, math is anti-Semitic, according to this formula, because it showed you 
the truth. Similarly, your eyes, your ears, when they are exposed to uh, the, you know, genocide of uh, Palestinian citizens, civilians, and the cries of the mothers and fathers that are carrying their dead children, your eyes and ears are anti-Semitic according to this uh, formula. The next article, uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid of Israel said Monday that Israel will go ahead and extract gas from the Karish field with or without a deal on the maritime border with Le Lebanon. The comments came hours after Lebanese President Michael Aoun said that indirect talks with Israel to end a maritime border dispute are in their final stages. Latham Roof, your thoughts? Yeah, we're getting uh, very close to the uh, you know final moments before we understand if there is going to be war uh, and or peace in uh, the region as a whole. Uh, this comes, of course, after also a presentation speech by Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, who said that uh, they're ready for either. But in either case, Lebanon will have to get its uh, gas before anybody else. It's enough, and that's where we're at. Uh, so we have less than two weeks for the uh, resolution of this uh, matter, uh, either through war or peace. And it's looking more and more like uh, it's going to be through war. Um, and uh, the West will have to find its uh, other sources of gas to feed the uh, heating of Europe during this winter. Uh, because they can't train in uh, the Jewish white supremacist uh, colony. So Lapid is saying that they're going to go ahead and steal the gas with or without a deal. So why even go through the charade of, uh, of a, of a so-called negotiation? Because they uh, are trying to delay any confrontation until there is an election in the colony and also to add more stresses on the economy of Lebanon. The more uh, longer it takes for Lebanon to have resolution for its uh, energy needs, uh, the you know more possibility that there is a confrontation within inside Lebanon. And the uh, longer that there is no confrontation, the better it is for the elections in the colonies. So yes, this is a tactical uh, maneuver towards their strategic goal of being able to loot the Lebanese and uh, Palestinian gas unopposed. Uh, the resistance in Lebanon knows that. That's why uh, we have this deadline in less than two weeks that will, you know, is not uh, movable anymore, uh, according to the presentation that we saw from uh, Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah. You know, I suspect, to be frank, that the, a statement like this is meant to put pressure on um, the, uh, the, the, the president of Lebanon. To, you know what I mean? I suspect that, you know, it's this far out, making that kind of statement, it seems like a tactical or strategic move to put pressure on the other side. We got about 30 seconds. Oh, yeah, definitely. They're trying to put the pressure on inside Lebanon on the resistance to make it like the resistance is the one that's going to cause the war and it's not the looting uh, is the source of the war. Uh, and uh, the resistance is very aware to that. And I'm sure President Don is very aware because of the mounting pressure to elect a new president and a new prime minister as the deadlines, uh, constitutional deadlines in Lebanon tick. 
and of course, the collaborators with the Zionists and the Saudis are uh, trying very hard to uh, make a government collapse and none exists uh, before the deadlines uh, to make it that it's harder and harder for Hezbollah to go into action. Uh, so it is also in the interest of both President Aoun and the resistance bloc as a whole to uh, go into war if there is no resolution peacefully before the end of the month. We've been talking with a, with Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Recent documents show that the CIA took control of the security company that was hired to guard Julian Assange at the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Also, a human rights group has asked the UN to abolish death by incarceration. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Marjorie Cohn. She's a professor of law at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego, California, and a former president of the National Lawyers Guild. Marjorie, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Well, thanks for having me. Great. I neglected to say that this great story can be found at consortiumnews.com. It's called Rights Groups to UN Abolish Death by Incarceration was written by the one Marjorie Cohn. Marjorie, enlighten us about your, uh, your, your outstanding article. Well, death by incarceration is uh, our extreme sentences, including life in prison and life in prison without possibility of parole. And Several human rights organizations just last week submitted a 31-page complaint to U.N. experts um, alleging that the United States is committing torture and violating the prohibition against racial discrimination through these death-by-incarceration sentences. Now, the United States is a global outlier in imposing death by incarceration because this country condemns one out of every seven prisoners to die in prison. That's more than 200,000 people, over two-thirds of them people of color. And that amounts to torture and racial discrimination as prohibited by international law. Black and Latinx people are disproportionately sentenced to death by incarceration. Um, and there are significant racial disparities in their rates of release and parole, as well as um, racial disparities at the charging and trial stages, which impact sentencing. And the Committee Against Torture has repeatedly recommended that countries abolish these life sentences, including life without parole. And by the way, the United States is the only country that allows juveniles to be sentenced to life without parole. And in April of last year, the right-wing Supreme Court in this country made it easier to sentence children to life without parole. And Justice Sotomayor, writing for the dissent, um, noted that 70% of all juveniles who were sentenced to life without parole were children of color. Sama Sisse says death by incarceration sentences, including life without parole, are inhumane and highlight the ineffectiveness of the United States 
criminal punishment system. I would add to that that it highlights the ineffectiveness of the United States, period. Not only that, but what we are now seeing is an incredible aging as a result of these sentences. We're seeing a dramatic increase in the aging of America's incarcerated population. Yes, and that's why these people die in prison. They, they're not sentenced to the death penalty. Um, they're sentenced to life in prison or life in prison without possibility of parole, which in effect condemns them to die in prison. And you're right. The, the uh, magnitude of these sentences and the fact that they impact people of color disproportionately um, really shows the breakdown in our society that we are warehousing people for the rest of their lives um, that, you know, in other countries such as Cuba, um, prisoners in Cuba work and get paid for their work and support their families while they're in custody, whereas um, the prohibition against slavery uh, in the Constitution only specifically applies to, d- does not apply to, um, to people who are under sentence and uh, incarcerated and are working in prison. In other words, implicitly, our Constitution allows people who are imprisoned to um, have their labor ripped off as, as slave labor. And the whole system is, is really rotten. The, and, and it starts at the stop, at the police stop, this racial profiling. I was um, a rapporteur for the International Commission of Inquiry on Systemic Racist Police Violence Against People of African Descent in the United States. I think we've talked about that on your show. We issued a 188-page report Um, documenting racial profiling at every stage of the criminal legal system. So this starts with pretextual traffic stops, race-based street stops or stop and frisk, um, Fourth Amendment violations, illegal search and seizure, excessive force, um, the use of lethal restraints, which can amount to torture, tasers, chokeholds, compression, asphyxia, rough rides, using vehicles as deadly weapons. And so this, this racism doesn't just start when people are sentenced to prison. It starts all the way back at the stop. It goes through um, the charging process, the trial, um, the sentencing process, and eventually uh, incarceration. Well, uh, let me tell you this, Marjorie. I'll tell you a quick story. You know, I was a police officer. I remember this myself in court, seeing it with my own eyes after, you know, seeing people get caught with all kinds of things and get all kinds of sentences. I'll never forget there was a young kind of looked like a middle class white kid who had got caught when, when at that time. This was in the late 80s. He'd been caught possession of marijuana. Right. He was there with a lawyer, his lawyer and his father. Obviously, he could afford a lawyer. I'll never forget, you know, the judge did the, I mean, the lawyer did the usual, stated a good case of defense and what have you. And by the time it was over, the judge was like congratulating him for having a good father and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm looking at it and I'm like, and I watch young black kids get convicted and thrown in jail and sentences and fined. And a young white kid comes in here because his father's there and he can afford a lawyer. He, he I mean, the judge all but hugged him and shook his hand and sent him merrily on his way with a stat docket, which I'm sure you know what that is. Um, 
Yes, this this is when it comes to people charged with crimes, and of course, people of color disproportionately are charged with crimes um, because police tend to hang out in uh, in the neighborhoods where people of color live. You don't see a, a tremendous. Pe- police presence in the upper middle class white neighborhoods, um, you know, where the white collar crime uh, is is rampant. And so, yes, there is a right to to a lawyer, to a free lawyer. And uh, there are good public defenders. There are bad public defenders. But it is true if you have the money and uh, your story is is emblematic of that, that uh, this white kid could afford probably a, a really top lawyer, um, you probably have a better chance uh, of ultimately prevailing. Now, that I, I'm a former public defender, and I was in private practice as well, so I, I do think there are good and bad uh, lawyers in both. But it is true that not only um, can money buy really good lawyers, but also the uh, tools that those lawyers need, hiring experts, for mm-hmm. example, um, which are very expensive. And so all of the things that go to make up um, the right to effective counsel um, are, I think, weighted toward toward white people in the criminal. I don't call it the criminal justice system because I don't think there's any justice. I call it the criminal legal system. Secret documents have exposed the CIA's Julian Assange obsession This is from Jacobin. New revelations show that the CIA secretly took control of the security company hired by Ecuador's government to guard Assange during exile in London. The agency spying on Assange and his visitors constitutes a major breach of civil liberties. Marjorie Cohn. Um, Yes, when Julian Assange, who of course is facing 175 years in prison for revealing evidence of U.S. war crimes, he's in a prison in London, but during the seven years that he lived in the Ecuadorian uh, embassy in London under a grant of asylum, um, Assange was visited by more than 100 attorneys, journalists, and doctors, including his criminal defense attorneys, international human rights lawyers, national security journalists, physicians medical professionals, and the CIA commissioned Undercover Global, or UC Global, a private Spanish security company, to send images from Assange's visitors' cell phones and laptops, as well as video streamed from their meetings to the CIA. They actually put recording devices and cameras in the rooms where Assange was and essentially live-streamed what he was doing and saying back to the CIA in Washington. And um, attorneys, well, there was a, a strict protocol when visitors arrived to visit Julian Assange, um, supposedly for the protection of Julian, but their passports, mobile phones, cameras, laptops, recording devices, other electronic equipment were turned over to the security guards in the lobby from the UC Global. And it turns out that um, while the visitors were meeting with Julian in the embassy, the guards next door were taking apart their phones, removing and photographing their SIM cards and downloading data 
from their electronic equipment. Well, last month, attorneys and journalists whom the CIA spied on um, while they were visiting Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy filed a lawsuit against the CIA, its former director, Mike Pompeo, UC Global, and its director, David Morales, in U.S. District Court. And um, these are all U.S. citizens, the plaintiffs, and they are alleging that these defendants violated their Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable search and seizure, violated the attorney-client privilege and the doctor-patient privilege, and they're asking for compensatory and punitive damages and an injunction to prevent the CIA from revealing their private communications and the purging of CIA CIA files um, of this information. Now, about um, this lawsuit was filed uh, nearly a year after the release of a an explosive Yahoo News report that documented the CIA's plans to kidnap and assassinate Assange while he was in the embassy. Pompeo was furious at the 2017 WikiLeaks revelation of the CIA's Vault 7 program, which enabled the CIA to tap into people's cell phones and smart TVs, basically turning them into listening devices. And the CIA called Wiki, of course, they blame the messenger, right? They called the expose the largest data loss in CIA history, and Pompeo called WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence service. But one of the things that came out in this Yahoo News report was that senior CIA and administration officials ordered sketches and options to assassinate Assange, and Donald Trump himself, he was president at the time, asked whether the CIA could assassinate Assange and provide him options for doing so. This is an outrage, an absolute outrage, and when, whereas, uh, even Barack Obama, who prosecuted more whistleblowers under the Espionage Act than all prior presidents combined, even the Obama administration didn't charge Julian Assange because they knew that that would violate the First Amendment. Well, Donald Trump uh, did not uh, did not hesitate, of course, when, when Pompeo got all upset uh, to charge Julian Assange, but he's not charged with these revelations about the CIA surveillance. He's charged with the 2010 revelations uh, in conjunction with Chelsea Manning the whistleblower, um, of revealing evidence of U.S. war crimes, illegal war crimes in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Guantanamo. And so Joe Biden, who should have uh, done what his buddy Barack did and dropped this lawsuit and dropped this extradition request trying to uh, extradite Julian Assange from London to the U.S. to stand trial, but he's pursuing it vigorously. And uh, so it's going through various appeals. Um, but uh, it could take years. Julian Assange is in very frail mental and physical health. Um, the, ju- the initial judge in the U.K. found that he was a high suicide risk. Marjorie Cohen, professor of law at the Thomas Jefferson School of Law in San Diego, California. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. U.S. lawmakers have exposed that they oppose student loan forgiveness because it will hurt military recruitment. Also, the U.S. is becoming a developing country by global standards, and the Pentagon has ordered a review of its clandestine psychological operations. Joining us now to discuss this story, we have Steve Poikinen. He is a national organizer for Action for Assange and Hope of Hope, host of Slow News Day on Rockfin. That's R-O-K-F-I-N, rockfin.com. Steve, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Good to be here. Oh, man, great to have you. Let's start here. Antiwar.com, the Pentagon, opens review of its clandestine psychological operations. The move came after a report on fake U.S. military-linked accounts that were promoting pro-Western narratives on Facebook and Twitter. Well, not only was there a report, Kim.com actually did a video, a Twitter space, and he had some of the NAFO goons on there. Uh, 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 And I understand you know a little bit about that. Steve, what's happening? Hey, but so uh, so I did. I listened in a little bit to the Twitter space, and it was effectively Kim. dot com is a Zen practitioner. Or he he he's spoken about it before. It's evident in the Twitter space that he tried to he hosted. He posted the whole video on I think Odyssey for anybody who wants to listen to it. Um, but they're just they're swarming they're just attacking him every time he tries to talk he's interrupted it's just a a bunch of classic uh destabilization kind of of moments and he gets little points in here and there but what it really does is show the um the effectiveness of uselessness in terms of attacking people in an online space uh the amount of disruption that um, that they're able to generate is the kind of stuff that gets people to react in a way that will get them banned. And that was certainly what they were trying to do with Kim.com. They were trying to get him to snap or lose school. He didn't do it. Uh, I, I think lesser people would have. Um, but now we've got, we've got uh, a, a really a much quieter uh, space with the NAFO trolls since this moment. Um, and we had a couple of people on the show this morning uh, on AM Wake Up that have been subjected to a lot of abuse from the NAFO trolls over the last several months. Uh, not so much since Kim.com did this thing. So it was probably a very, very good move on his part. This article reports that CENCOM has not commented on a lot of these accounts. One fake account posted an inflammatory tweet claiming that relatives of deceased Afghan refugees had reported bodies being returned from Iran with missing organs, and that this was linked to a video that was part of an article posted on a U.S. military-affiliated site. And reading that just made me think about the stories that we're seeing in Ukraine about the mass graves that that have been found and all these people that are being dug up. And then, of course, we go back to Syria and the the gas, the the you know all of those stories, all of this does now is just kind of validate what we've been experiencing for a number of years. Uh, I'm I'm not trying to plug my own show here, but again, this morning we did have Eva Bartlett and Vanessa Beely on. Eva's in uh, Donbass, and the Donetsk was documenting a civilian massacre yesterday. Vanessa Beely has been in Damascus for a number of years, and part of the conversation is about the overlap 
in both propaganda techniques, military-style campaigns, and terrorist approaches from Syria to Ukraine and how analogous the operations are. Um, we, we have, I, I guess, an unfettered, unencumbered highway for criminal gangs, effectively, to do whatever they want to in these countries with a compliant media that's just going to allow for the, the wheels of genocide to remain greased. It's, it's pretty disgusting. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, the, the Pentagon's psychological operations effectively help shape the narrative or in the way that the local citizens react, certainly in the way that people in the West react to all of this. Well, here's what kills me. There's a report published by research groups, Graphica. If I'm not mistaken, isn't Graphica, haven't they been linked to like the UK Intel? Yeah. Yeah, they have. They have. And Stanford University isn't exactly the most independently <laughs> operating out, you know, organization, institution on the planet either. They have a long and storied history with both the United States intelligence community independently of the government and the government. Uh, wasn't former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice uh, the provost at Stanford? Yes, yes, she was. <laughs> she was. So, uh, yeah. uh, just, just another, another interesting, uh, uh, <laughs> just a, a, another interesting, interesting overlap. Uh, U.S. lawmakers say student loan forgiveness will hurt military recruiting. <laughs> Nineteen members of the U.S. House of Representatives have written a letter to Joe Biden and Secretary of Defense Austin cautioning that the parcel cancellation of student debt can have the unintended consequence of reducing military recruitment. Now, a, a couple of a uh, couple of probably months ago it was cancellation of student debt is going to contribute to inflation in the country. Now the cancellation of student debt is going to have the unintended consequence of reducing military recruitment. Somebody doesn't want this debt to be canceled, Steve Poikinen. I'm looking forward to next week when canceling student debt will be responsible for an outbreak of polio. Um, <laughs> oh, that was last uh, week. That was last oh, week. Oh, it's monkeypox. Monkeypox this week. Yeah, monkeypox. Monkeypox, yeah. Monkey pox. yeah. <laughs> they, uh, the, or monkeys the, with polio. Uh, Oh, that's even worse. That, that's November's. That's November's. Um, that's right before Election Day. Um, <laughs> uh, what what this is is an act of desperation so flimsy that only the the GOP could come up with it in an election year because the student debt cancellation is uh, the way that I understand it. The vast majority of it is for universities that don't even exist anymore. The, the, the overwhelming majority of the people that are applying to get their 10 grand off of their student loan debt canceled are already too old to serve in the military anyway, unless they up the age of the draft. So what they're doing is just trying to play some hokey bait and switch when they know that military recruitment numbers are down because there's fewer and fewer ways to justify being a brutal empire. And that's really all there is to it. So they've got to come up with whatever, you know, with whatever circus or distraction they can to make people look away from the fact that not too many people, even if they're impoverished, are signing up to go create, you know, civilian casualties from drone strikes or be the people that wind up waterboarding somebody just because. 
Here's what I like. Representative Don Bacon, right? He tweets, My House colleagues and I are very concerned that the deeply flawed and unfair policy of blanket student loan forgiveness, blanket, he's only said $10,000, but I I continue, will also weaken our, think of these three words, four, most powerful recruiting tool. At the precise moment, we're experiencing a crisis in military. Most powerful recruiting tool. So what they're telling us is, there's some level of honesty here. you got to give them credit for that, uh, uh, Steve. That student loans are their most powerful recruiting tool. If we impoverish and enslave our young people to, uh, 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 to these you know, loans, if we uh, – because it's debt. What is debt? It is a claim on future earnings. If we steal all the money that they're going to get in the future, then they'll have to go in the military. I, I, I'll put it like this. I do feel there's a certain level of cynical honesty here, Steve. Oh, without a doubt. And they probably don't even realize that that they're saying it. They probably don't realize how truly darkly ironic that is. But uh, Danny Sherson is a buddy of mine. He um, hosts Fortress on the Hill podcast and has written a number of books. He's an anti-war veteran, was a corporal in the Army, taught at West Point. Um, And uh, he's he's a guest on the show. Oh, excellent. Yeah, Danny's fantastic. Um, uh, I mean, he, he goes on at length about the poverty draft and what it's done and what it's done from you know, the inception of the end of the regular draft, which he looks to be one of the more nefarious acts of Congress, uh, especially at the end of the Vietnam War, because all it does is remove skin from the game from everybody else. It fetishizes the troops. You treat them as a thank you for your service, and you've done your part for your country, and that's the end of it. Um, so if you can't lean on the most impoverished, as this gentleman was suggesting, you're going to have a harder time getting people in uniform. And, and this is at a moment where, uh, at the end of unipolarity, uh, I have a feeling that the U.S. military is going to be looking to up their recruiting numbers. And In this piece, they write, one of the reasons the U.S. government doesn't offer the same kinds of social support systems that people have in all other wealthy nations is because otherwise there'd be no economic pressure on young Americans to sign up for the service in the U.S. war machine. But the term poverty draft can create a bit of confusion because when most Americans hear poverty, they think about homeless people. In reality, the U.S. is a nation where the majority of the population would be unable to pay a $1,000 emergency expense. I think it's also important to understand that in a lot of other countries that are able to provide the social safety net programs that they do, it's because they don't have the dramatic military budget that the United States has because we cover their costs. Well, we cover their costs and we make sure that we're always there holding a giant bag underneath when the bottom of that country falls out because of whatever IMF loan we negotiated or whatever destabilization campaign we went on. It's a revolving door of of rubbleization and theft. <laughs> That's essentially what the U.S. foreign policy is built on. This article, U.S. is becoming a developing country on global rankings. we got about two minutes. 
This is probably the least surprising article that I've read, <laughs> although I would put the caveat that with the UN Sustainable uh, Development Goals for 2030, what they're proposing and the reason that it's coming out through this in terms of econ- or of uh, um, you know world rankings is going to be the huge push to get everybody into the next step into the technocratic future. You can't deny that we are crumbling you can't deny that our infrastructure is broken there's no as far as i know still no running water in jackson mississippi most of the water in the country is poisoned there's microplastics in the soil and an umbilical cord blood we're not doing great so we do deserve to be downgraded that's 100 percent correct steve poikin in you will own nothing and be happy. And of course, in your if you're in Europe, you'll be real cold too. Steve Porkin is a national organizer organizer for Action for Assange. Assange. Yeah, exactly. Action for Assange, and he's host of Slow News Day. And what's the other one? Morning what? AM Wake Up. AM Wake Up, both on rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N.com, Steve Porkin. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The U.S. State Department has stopped publishing its military expenditures for the first time since the 1960s. And the Pentagon opens a sweeping review of clandestine psychological operations after complaints about the U.S. military's influence operations using Facebook and Twitter. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. Jim Cavanaugh, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me. And here's, I'm going to go, antiwar.com has an article on this, but I'm going to go to their very last paragraph because it says, these are the WMEAT reports. Um, And uh, that stands for World Military Expenditures and Arms Transfer. And they say, the discontinuation of the WMEAT reports, which reduces the U.S. government transparency, comes as the U.S. is shipping billions of dollars worth of arms into Ukraine with virtually no oversight. Hmm. Could those things be connected? Your thoughts, Jim Cavanaugh? Oh, yeah, it's likely they are. Although, you know, they're probably glad for the uh, not not to have to do it anymore. This was I didn't realize this was a mandated by law policy that they would have to produce this report every year. And it was only with the passage of the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act that that was repealed from the law, that the amendment of the law was removed. So they no longer have to do it. So this is, again, I don't know, I can't tell you when that act was passed. Maybe it was passed after this when Ukraine stuff started. But um, uh, they don't, you know, the United States is kind of embarrassed by this. They, they, are, they were, I think, in the last report, 70% of the weapons by value, by monetary value, uh, weapons transferred, sold and transferred in the world. You know, I just saw a thing yesterday that the United States has now spent in Ukraine, weapons for Ukraine, I think, I, I, now I'm, I'm confusing whether it's half or double 
because <laughs> uh, I can't quite believe it's double, but maybe it is. It's either half or double the entire Russian military budget for the year, Russia's entire military budget for the year. So whatever it is, instead of saying it's half, let's be, let's be conservative about it. That's still half of Russia's entire military budget for the year in one, one country in the last few months. So, you know, this is an embarrassment for the United States. They claim to be a peaceful nation. They claim to, to uh, abjure the use of violence in political affairs and uh, attack any other country that does. And they are, of course, as Martin Luther King said, the greatest purveyors of violence in the world. And they help, you know, other countries who are their friends commit violence on their own citizens and in their regions. And it's interesting because in this piece, they say that eliminating this reporting comes as sources say the United States is virtually unable to track what happens to the equipment being sent. Well, I don't know. uh, Other than not wanting to track it, I don't know why it can't be tracked. We can track just about anything in the world we want to. Uh, And they even go back to say that CNN has reported that the U.S. has few ways to track the substantial supply of anti-tank, anti-aircraft, and other weaponry. Uh, the, the again, the, the claiming that you're not able to track it when you're now eliminating the report that requires you to track <laughs> it to me sounds like a circular argument. Yeah. You know, and if you can't track it, then be a little more conservative about how how, how you hand it out or sell it out or, you know, push it out into the world. I saw again yesterday, I think it was France. Some kids in France uh, found stingers for sale uh, on the Internet that were given to Ukraine, <laughs> you know, part of the Ukraine haul that they got from the United States. These are anti-aircraft weapons that, you know are becoming less and less effective against sophisticated military aircraft, but can bring down a civilian airliner in a GIF. And the United States does this consistently. They didn't, oh, we, we poured all these arms into the moderate rebels, rebels in, the, in Syria, but we couldn't, we didn't know they were going to go, end up in the hands of ISIS. I mean, baloney, you knew what was going to happen to them. You watched it happen, did nothing to stop it. They do this all the time. This is a method for them to kind of uh, pretend that they're hands off with the uh, people they uh, identify as terrorists, whom they're arming all the time. And Garland, I, and Garland, yeah, it, it was a just a couple of months ago that Rand Paul was castigated for, yeah. for wanting to require that a over that a, for lack of a better word, an inspector general be put in be put in place to oversee the sale of these weapons. And and the senators took him to task. Well, I'm suspecting, Jim, that's what got him on that Mirovets uh, Ukraine uh, kill list. Because, I mean, there's a lot of things you could get away with, but you're messing with the oligarch's money. The, the, the other part of it, Jim, is this. You're looking at probably close to, if not the, most corrupt country in the world. That money, those, those things are going in there, and people are getting paid off them. That stuff's going all over the world. It's going anywhere who will buy it. The Mirovets probably, they weren't mad— at uh, Rand Paul because he was a Putin bot or because he was opposed to anything in there. 
He was cutting into their cash because they are making literally billions right now off U.S. tax taxpayer, uh, you know, off the U.S. taxpayers uh, back, Jim. And and Garland, Joe Biden, when he was vice president, was the commissar of the Ukraine. He was responsible for U.S. policy for U.S. policy towards Ukraine during the Obama administration. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, he bragged about withholding money until they fired the prosecutor who was looking into uh, uh, the uh, Burisma, was it the uh, uh, the gas company who was hiring his son. And yeah, the CBS did the report a month ago, a few weeks ago, about 70 percent, you know, interviewing a guy from a nonprofit NGO saying 70 percent of the weapons we don't know what happened to that. That go to Ukraine. We don't know where they end up, and they squashed that quickly enough. So you know, we know this. This is, but they don't care because firstly, first of all, the weapons manufacturers certainly don't care. The more you have, the more the waste there is, the more they have to produce. The bigger the contracts they get, the more money they get. And uh, you know, Ukrainians and the American political establishment don't care either. They just want the weapons and they want, as you say, because they're, they're taking, they're creaming, taking the skim of that cream off the weapons contracts. And it, that's what's going on. And everybody knows it. And I don't think anybody's being fooled by it. This report, I don't think, get, when it, the, the, this W meat report, <laughs> interesting, the meat of the matter, uh, or is the beef, I don't think went into those issues very in, in detail, but they just gave you an overall view of, you know, the, the amount of weaponry that was being put into the world and put into the conflicts in the world by the United States. Wilmer, let me add this. If I'm not mistaken, didn't we just leave like tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons in, in Afghanistan? Afghanistan? So we, we leave we, tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons in Afghanistan. We leave it there. Tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine worth of weapons and uh, 70 percent of it's, uh, you know, evaporated to wherever. It, it just looks like a giant scam where we make as the U.S. makes as many weapons as it possibly can, ships them who cares where and collects the money. And, of course, we all pay for it, but, you know, because it comes out of tax dollars and then the weapons disappears. Um, I think it's going to show up, Wilmer, uh, in a lot of places in Europe. The Europeans will see those weapons again. And will be convinced that we have to go into Europe in order to stop the aggression that we weaponized and funded. Jim. Yeah, I was going to say, this is, this is the remaining, one of the few remaining actually industrial products that the United States makes are, are weapons, you know, uh, while they've given up on in making and exporting steel, <laughs> that the Chinese do that now. Uh, the Americans have only, you know, very few things left, but weapons. It's one of the biggest economic uh, essential uh, fabricated, manufactured commodities the United States makes. Pentagon opens sweeping review of clandestine psychological operations. Complaints about the U.S. military's influence operations using Facebook and Twitter have raised concern in the White House and federal agencies. Your thoughts, Jim Cavanaugh? You know, when I see an article like this, I always say to myself, what are they hiding? <laughs> Why are they revealing this? What are they trying to hide by revealing this? I remember when right. I saw 
Edwin Meese talk about we're sending, we were illegally sending weapons to Nicaragua. I said, what, what are they hiding? Indeed, they were hiding the whole uh, uh, October surprise thing, I think. But anyway, uh, what's interesting here is it's, again, it, so let's take it at face value. It's, I mean, the White House was complaining about this. That's what this article says. Facebook was complaining about it, and the White House was complaining about it. So now the Defense Department and the Central Command is going to look into the matter of American sock puppet accounts and sock puppet farms, you know, and uh, good for them. But, you know, again, it's hard for me to believe. One of the interesting things they said here was that they found when they looked into it that people actually followed the overt accounts more. they, They were... They were better, more effective than the sock puppet accounts, which were pretended to be something else, which tells you something. I think people on the Internet are getting a little more, a lot more uh, savvy about what, whether they take things at face value. And so you have the American, and especially since this was like, you, you know, it says right in the article uh, that they're authorized to do this by law. Uh, you know, and it's somehow now they're, they're making a deal out of investigating how much are they doing it and whether they should be doing this much, you know, and maybe Facebook got a little annoyed because they, somebody, maybe there was a whistleblower on Facebook. And actually this, this comes out of a private report that was done by a, a couple of academics, I think. So maybe they were afraid of, of that. There's something more coming out about this that they want to get in front of. Hey, hey Jim, I've got the evidence for you. Okay. You ready? September 17th, Kim.com did this Twitter space thing with the NAFO. Those are the, the, the bots that we're talking about that are connected to the CIA, right? September 17th. Here's the video of my chat with NAFO, a group of state-sponsored cyber bullies. They attack Twitter users who are speaking out against the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine. NAFO is a propaganda and intimidation campaign by the CIA and, CIA and the Ukrainian government, right? That was September 17th. And it was all recorded, and these NAFO people are on there, and trust me, it didn't look good. So Kim.com does this on September 17th, right? September 19th is when this article came out. That's what happened. Kim.com exposed this operation. People could see it and hear it for what it is, and they're like, oh, crap, We're, 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 we're done, we're out, we're caught. Okay, we'll just pretend like we're doing the right thing to get rid of them. Jim. Yeah, it's not going away. I mean, look, and, it, and one, of the, one of the interesting to me where they didn't mention in this article was that, of course, one of the great uh, actors in this game is Israel, who have we've seen articles about this all over the place about how they uh, their military has troll farms engaged constantly in putting forward, you know, Israeli information and misinformation or whatever you want to call it throughout the internet. So, no, they don't mention that here. They're Russia, Russia and China, <laughs> you know. We're just about out of time. Thank, thanks very much. We've been talking with Jim Cavanaugh. He's a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch and an all-around good guy and friend of the show. Thanks a lot, Jim. You've, you've been listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 